0: Hi, it's Arjun. With the video this week, that's going to be a bit of a 2024 preview, probably our last super Spike of calendar 2023. And the title is phasing in profitable growth. I think this is going to be a, a key theme for certainly traditional energy, but perhaps new energies as well. Uh, as we get into 2024, we'll have more to come. This will be a little bit of a preview video. And So I want to start with uh, what has been the theme of the last two super spike posts, which is key lessons from 2023. And let me start with Traditional energy. My number one takeaway from last year is return on capital, the improved level of profitability, which I and many others have been clamoring for for a long time, uh, is is here. I think we should feel really good that in a year where oil prices, gas prices pull back a bit, return on capital has been very resilient and at very healthy levels. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment. I think for new energies, we all know it peaked a little after President Biden's inauguration in early 2021. But 2023 has been something of a crash-and-burn year really across a whole broad swath of new energy sectors, whether it's been solar, offshore wind, uh, EV charging, even some of the traditional auto OEM uh, EV growth plans, you name it, it's been a really challenging year for new energies. And I'm just going to call it a wake-up call. Our view remains we're going to need a lot of all forms of energy, both old and new, but you're going to need real business models. We no longer live in a world of zero interest rates and pretend uh, you know, pretend profitability plans. You're actually going to have to pencil some of this stuff out. We are going to need it. So it's not that none of it's going to work. We're trying to figure out which will work. Probably the work that we did in this past year that maybe we're most proud of, uh, and I think that got a lot of attention, is how large the total addressable market, the TAM, to use a tech term, is for energy. We talk about A lot, the lucky one billion of us that live in the US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and how much more energy we use than the other seven billion people on Earth, soon to be nine other billion people on Earth, and the need for all forms of energy. You're gonna want a lot of oil and natural gas to meet those needs, but guess what? If you are not long oil, if you're not long natural gas as a country, you're going to be highly motivated to try and figure out new energies that does not make you dependent on geopolitically insecure areas. And I might include the U.S. in that bucket as well. I think if you're China, if you're India, you're not going to want exposure to anyone. And so there will be a motivation to do energies and there'll be a motivation to try and achieve our environmental and climate goals. But you're going to need it all for the foreseeable future. And this addressable market, I think, is really the, the dominant theme. It should be the dominant theme for energy. How do you meet the world's energy needs? How do you do it so that it's ideally affordable, abundant, and geopolitically secure, and with, um, I guess, a decreasing environmental and climate footprint? That that would be the ideal, and that's what we're striving for. In the macro, we've been uh, in the camp of Supervol that we're not yet in a super cycle. And I think every pullback we have kind of reinforces that notion We've been concerned a little bit about some of the near-term demand trends in Europe, US, and China. Quite frankly, in 2023, demand overall has been very good. We have a bit of the view that while shale growth ought to slow and mature, we hadn't yet seen signs that it was ready to roll over. And I think that view is frankly surprised to the upside. We're getting better and more durable shale growth than certainly what even we expected a year ago. And we didn't think shale would peak for several more years. And of course, non opec overall has grown. And so Still super ball type macro backdrop, what I think is noteworthy is that seems to be applying to new energies as well. And there's not some smooth straight line up macro backdrop for the newer sectors either. So I think super vol for all of the above uh, is going to continue for the foreseeable future. So let me start with the traditional energy profitability cycle. And it is the best. This happens to cover the course of my career since the early 90s. Uh, the black dotted line uh, shows the four different ROCE, return on capital employed regimes, profitability, total company profitability. It's been the core metric we've talked about. And, you know, what we've observed is it's, it's three years. It's still early in the new cycle, but it is shaping up to be the best profitability period yet. And frankly, and perhaps shockingly, even better than the profitability of the super spike era. We are definitively not in the oil or for that matter, any other energy commodity supercycle at this moment, like we were 20 years ago, yet the profits are better. And I think there's some good signs that we're seeing where CapEx is still subdued. uh, And this idea of needing to generate profitability at a time the sector is under pressure, at a time there's uncertainty about energy transition and are we gonna use fossil fuel demand going forward? And while I think there's no end in sight to how high and how long oil and gas demand will continue to grow, The doubts that other people have are certainly supporting what has been a good profitability cycle, companies being hesitant to engage in new long cycle projects and so forth. And so I think the outlooks for profitability remain quite healthy. It's going to be volatile and choppy as we're clearly seeing. And I will say, um, I think 2023 is the graduation where it can't just be about, oh, we need to be better on profitability. Companies are going to have to shift to... Um, some positive messaging about what their unique value proposition is. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But it has been um, my big takeaway from 2023. We had a pullback, profits remain very robust. And I think it's something to be very hopeful about in terms of what is the potential of this sector and its ability to generate sustainably much better returns uh, on capital than it has historically. And so I want to transition to this theme of phasing in profitable growth, because I think there's this question of why in 2023, if you're so happy or excited, Arjun, about improved returns on capital, the market did fade it. Uh, the XLE energy equities, traditional energy equities, they're going to be down this year, not as, not as poorly as new energies fared, but they are going to have under, in all likelihood have underperformed the S&P 500 this year. Uh, and the market faded it. And I think it faded it for two reasons. Um, one is that the cyclicality is always going to matter. So we're in, if we're in a super volatile market where you're going to have some downside risks, When those materialize, it's still a trading stock market. So my longer-term view about the ultimate potential of the sector, about the sustainability of the returns, I think will be true, or at least that's our view. But it doesn't mean we don't have a lot of choppiness in the short term as we go through the cyclicality. I think the other big question is markets to some degree have doubted uh, the long-term sustainability of the returns. And they're doubting it either because they're not sure about demand or the companies themselves have created uncertainty about how they're going to perpetuate good returns. Um, What is your ultimate inventory? And that's not just for shale companies, it's for any of the subsectors, it's for any of the uh, different asset bases and basins someone's in. Do you have a plan to replenish your inventory over the long run that will be consistent with generating good returns? And I really think this is going to be one of the core themes for 2024. It's not good enough to just have improved your returns. People are going to have to believe it's going to be sustainable, even if it's choppy along the way. We're never getting out of this trading kind of market mindset. It, that choppiness might be here to stay, uh, but can you show some duration? And so I ask, what is a company's unique value proposition? I think there's some choices. If you're a large cap company, I'm thinking the super majors here uh, as an example, or some of the very large non-integrated oils as well. To me, they have the clear strategy to try and be going concerns. And that means you can see it in some of the recent M&A, whether it's Exxon Pioneer or Chevron Hess, and I'm just citing these as examples. I'm not commenting on whether the prices paid were good or bad, but these are clear examples of companies trying to say, we want to be big, great, going concern companies over the long run, adding to our inventory, Uh, they believe they're going to generate good profits from these assets. We, as investors or analysts, can debate all sorts of things about execution and so forth. But they have a clear and, I think, well-articulated business model. And there's quite a bit of divergence, increasingly, amongst the various large-cap companies. Some are leaning more into new energies. Some are leaning into new energies in different ways. With Exxon, you have sort of carbon capture and lithium. With Chevron, you got a low-carbon ventures portfolio. The Europeans certainly, perhaps due to societal pressure or otherwise, have a broader range of different trends. We we, we can say all these things are good or bad. That's not the point of this post. My point is that there is some divergence in the strategies. They are all going for that going concern kind of valuation premium and beating the markets over the long run. And it's interesting. I, I think for sort of everyone else, what is the value proposition? Is it LNG or gas growth? Um, I think I haven't spent enough time on the unique advantages of infrastructure, I'm going to call it conversion. That could be converting crude oil into refined products, the refining sector, certainly that's important in critical minerals and some of the um, new energies, basic building block commodities. China dominates that today. We would hope that it won't just be a China story going forward. So who's going to be good at that? It could be even midstream gas and uh, some of that part of the value chain. But this, We all know it's hard to build infrastructure. Uh, And once you have it, it can be a real competitive advantage. And that applies to traditional areas like U.S. refining, and it can apply to some of the newer areas, critical minerals and so forth. But it's an area of potential distinction and competitive advantage. It can be for upstream producers as well. Where and how does infrastructure fit in? How does new energies fit in? Um, It's always about what's your business model? Does it make sense for you? But this could be just dis- differentiating and distinctive. Are you gonna be a yield vehicle? That's probably the one area where, uh, I-, I attach the word growth, and I'll talk about that in a second, that may maybe uh, we don't have growth, so we're gonna turn into a yield vehicle, but it's not enough. It's not enough, clearly, to simply say our returns on capital have improved. Everybody's done that. Everybody's balance sheet's better. What is your unique value proposition as a company, if you're an investor? Which companies are not appreciated today? that are differentiating themselves and are going to come in the money, either because super vol has caused short term sell off in the sector or what have you, or because whatever they're doing isn't fully appreciated yet in the stock. To me, it's what's kind of most interesting about looking at the broad energy space. And I want to say, and I want to make it totally clear, I'm, I'm naming this phasing in profitable growth. The emphasis is always on profitable. Um, If if we have to pick and choose between profitability or growth, I will always pick profitability. There's no question about it. Full stop. I am in no way saying there's an excuse to start emphasizing growth to a greater degree. That's not the point either. It is about the duration of the ability to to generate competitively advantaged returns over the long run, adding to the duration of good profits. That does require some investment. It does require risk taking. You can't just cut capex your way to a sustainable long-term return on capital advantage. That can get you a short-term boost. It doesn't get you to sustainability. And I think that's where we are with the sector. Who is leaning into the cycle in a sensible way? It's possible to lean in in an unsensible way. <laughs> not all m and is good. Some of to get overpriced. Some companies are not going to execute well. Uh, and that's the judgment we make as analysts and investors profitability will always trump growth, uh, certainly from my perspective. Let me spend a second on the new energies areas because this has come under a lot of pressure this year. And I think some people say, see, I told you, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And what I'd say is when I go back to the the core essence of, of energy and why we use it, there is massive energy needs amongst the other 7 billion people on Earth, soon to be 9 billion people. And the idea that China or India, or the rest of Southeast Asia, in particular, those three regions of 1.4 billion people each, the idea that they're going to want to be dependent on OPEC oil exports, or for that matter, US and Canadian oil and oil sands exports, uh, I'm going to say they're going to try their hardest to diversify their energy sources. So we can always wonder how much of this is driven by climate or the environment, and there can be a multitude of reasons. But that geopolitical imperative for sure will emphasize a critical need for new energies. So if we care about trying to meet, if we say there is a business case to be met to meet the energy needs of the rest of the world, that to me is where new energies have a, a real opportunity. But we are learning, you are going to have to scale, I'm going to call it post subsidies. Maybe there's a case for subsidies to get a business going, but what businesses do we think can overcome that to where they stand on their own? And this isn't about debating, does this industry get some tax break versus somewhere else? What I am saying is, if your business model is 100% dependent on subsidies, um, it's not a real business until it can scale without fully benefiting from government largesse. I think we should dis- distinguish between individual projects that might be profitable either with or without subsidies versus scaling up a business. And you know, renewable diesel comes to mind. I think some of the U.S. refiners have understandably converted some of their old refineries into renewable diesel projects. They benefit from the uh, LCFS tax credit, basically, that makes that business viable. It's not obvious to me those businesses would exist without that LCFS. Um, And so that tells me, is it a scalable business? I'm not so sure. Um, Does it make sense for those companies on an individual project basis to do these projects? Yes, Uh, because the individual project can be profitable. I think this to me is, are you displacing or, or, um, accounting for large portions of future demand, or are you more one off projects And too much of the new energy space is in this bucket where the individual project I think might work with subsidies or tax breaks or what have you, but but the real thing is what's going to scale as a business and I hear I'm going to give Tesla credit. Yes, they benefit from a tax credit. But to me, they've shown through their business model, they created a sustainable, long-lasting business. And I push back that it was some $7,500 tax credit that caused that business to scale. Yes, that existed, but they created a car, at least affluent Americans uh, wanted to drive. Uh, Not here to debate the environmental benefits or lack thereof, but they are a meaningful share of the luxury vehicle market. To me, that's an example of a successful, scalable business. We need more of those types of examples. Ultimately, what will work in the developing world? As an American, we spend so much time on the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, poorly named, but it is what its name is. Um, what's gonna happen in Europe? What's gonna happen in the U.S.? Like, I, I don't want to say who cares. Um, w- what I would say is that we have a massive existing energy infrastructure. Yes, we probably could stand to make it cleaner, Uh, to reduce emissions, to make it lower cost, to to modernize it, all these kind of things. Uh, The rest of the world, though, they're the ones that are lacking in using as much energy as we do. And there is a big, big delta uh, for them to move up the economic and energy S-curve. So to me, the question is, what is going to work in India? What is going to work in China? What is going to work in the rest of Southeast Asia? And what is going to work in Africa? All buckets of 1.4 billion people and counting. Um, that to me is kind of the new energies, uh, opportunities that, that make sense. And for the US and Europe, uh, I, I think it is about uh, improving the cleanliness, uh, lowering the cost structure of our existing systems. Certainly, you know, methane's is uh, an example of a topic I've spent a lot of time talking about. I certainly support the uh, the, the efforts, generally speaking. Uh, without getting into the details, uh, that uh, having lower methane intensity is a a good thing as one example of cleaning up our existing system. When it comes to who should do this, um, I've been overwhelmingly on the track record that it makes the most sense for pure-play energy companies, new energy companies to do this, and that there is no mandate, there is no urgency, there is no requirement for traditional energy companies to have to do new stuff. There is an obligation to clean up scope one and these types of emissions, I accept that. But the idea that a traditional energy company has to do a new energies or that somehow the success of new energies is dependent on these companies' involvement, I don't see it. Now, are there logical adjacencies? Sure. Um, I, I respect the fact that companies like Exxon and Oxy are trying to make a carbon capture business. We can debate the merits of that in a separate video, but at least from their perspective, They are seeing a competitive advantage opportunity that they think they can do. Um, I've always been intrigued by Total's sort of integrated gas and power strategy as another example of a company that seems to be playing with its strengths. You can, again, always debate individual uh, decisions and and specific assets they've invested in. Um, But but to me, it seems consistent with who they are and what they do. And that's how I look at it. it. It was Tesla, again, to go back to that example, that kind of cracked the code on how at least a segment of the auto vehicle market could move to electric vehicles. And and I'm going to be biased to say that it is most likely going to be pure play new energies companies that are going to be best positioned or I guess had the greatest opportunity to really figure out whatever is that next home run technology. And we're going to need a whole bunch of them. There is no silver bullet at this point in time. And so I'd like to end this video on a personal note. I would like to wish everyone Merry Christmas, Happy Annika, Happy New Year. And to say thank you all for your engagement, your questions, your comments, the constructive feedback, the positive feedback, we take it all. Yes, it did cost me this year some progress in my handicap, which stagnated this year, but it was all worth it. When we look at the opportunity to engage with all of you, both my original Super Spikes subscribers, my new Veriton subscribers, um, I wish everyone a happy holiday season. This is likely to be our last post for calendar 2023, and we will see you all in the new year. Thank you.